Thank you, Jack, and, and thanks to the Lumen Christi Institute for having me here and uh, also for, as you pointed out, supporting both the formation of the Society of Catholic Scientists and our first uh, meeting, which was held here in Chicago uh, about uh, a little more than a year or so ago. I have been concerned for a long time, uh, as I think many of you have, about the, the rupture between uh, science and faith that we witness in our society. And it's a rupture really uh, in which uh, individuals uh, regard their, uh, particularly young people, uh, regard their uh, pursuit of the profession of science as somehow inconsistent with the maintenance of their faith. Uh, or their colleagues, their, their friends will say the same thing. And so I think it's very important that we identify role models, not only living role models, but historic role models that contradict the hypothesis or falsify the hypothesis that science and faith are incompatible with each other. And Georges Lemaitre is an outstanding example of somebody who lived both aspects of his life harmoniously, uh, even when he was challenged on both ends. Uh, for a long time, Lemaitre was forgotten by the astrophysical community. And beginning about 10 years ago, he was rediscovered uh, through the efforts of several astronomers who you'll hear about, culminating ultimately in a vote by the International Astronomical Union, which is a union of interna an international union of scientists, astronomers, uh, to uh, attach his name to what has been known as the Hubble Law. Uh, and I want to describe for you this evening why that uh, change makes sense. And I also want to um, describe some of Lemaitre's uh, experience in his life uh, as a Catholic priest as well as, uh, as an astronomer, really a cosmologist. Uh, and I'll talk a little bit about some of the theological and philosophical aspects of the insights that he brought to astronomy about the beginnings of the universe and the fact that the universe um, had a beginning that was very different from the, uh, what we perceive as reality, our life in the cosmos today. So that's a tall order for 45 minutes, but I'm going to do the best I can. Georges-Henri Lemaitre, and that is the last time I will attempt the French pronunciation, uh, is, um, uh, was born in 1894 in Charlois, Belgium. He served with distinction uh, in the artillery uh, in the 3rd Army Division in Belgium in World War I. <clears throat> in fact, he argued the only reason he didn't become an officer was that he made the mistake of pointing out an error in the artillery manual uh, to an officer, which uh, led to a punishment, of course. <clears throat> uh, it was a physics error. Um, but he was decorated nonetheless. Uh, he went on after the war to um, obtain uh, both degrees in mathematics and physics as well as to be ordained as a Catholic priest. And he knew from his childhood that he wanted to do both of these things. His PhD in physics from MIT was actually uh, work that he did at the Harvard College Observatory on variable stars. Harvard College Observatory did not award PhDs at that time. Um, I believe they award PhDs now. Uh, I think that's correct. Um, that joke goes over much better in Ithaca at Cornell, believe me. <laughs> so, um, and he got his PhD at MIT. He then um, went um, back to uh, Belgium, to Louvain, where he became a professor, and he spent his entire academic life uh, at the University of Louvain. But what's important to note is that the period after he was ordained in 1923, um, up to the time that he went back to Belgium, he traveled to England and worked with uh, Eddington, who was a prominent uh, cosmologist. Of course, he worked in the United States. Um, he interacted with Einstein, and he also interacted with uh, Robert Millikan, a physicist at Caltech. And through these interactions, he formed um, ideas that would lead ultimately to the concept that we call today the Big Bang model for the origin of the cosmos. There was no internet at the time. Interactions between scientists had to be on a personal level. 
journals were delivered after you know, weeks or longer. And so it was a very different kind of interaction than we're used to scientifically today. Uh, he uh, was nominated by Einstein uh, for the Frank Prize in 1934, which he won. That was, at the time, the second most lucrative prize in science after the Nobel. Uh, he won the Eddington Medal in 1953 from the Royal Astronomical Society. He was elected to the Pontifical Academy of Sciences in 1936. He became its president in 1960. Uh, he went emeritus in 64 and died two years later. Now this outline of his life, although it looks impressive, doesn't really give you a flavor for what he did and how he did it. And so that's what I want to do now. So I'm going to start with Lemaitre's contributions to general relativity and the concept that the universe, universe is expanding. And it's through that that um, he, in fact, contributed uh, much more to our understanding of cosmology than up till now has been acknowledged. And, and so we'll get into the question of the Hubble law and the expanding universe. So uh, we celebrated the 100th anniversary of general relativity last year. And at the time that Einstein developed uh, this theory, which was a theory of gravity, uh, which was essentially geometric in nature, um, the assumption, the going assumption was that the universe, everything, all matter, us, stars, etc., were static. It was an eternal, unchanging reality. Part of this was philosophical, and part of it was that there was no evidence that things were changing. In fact, what we call galaxies today, such as the Andromeda Galaxy, which you see in an old photo from a little bit after that time, were really not known to be objects outside our own Milky Way galaxy. One perfectly acceptable model of the cosmos was that the Milky Way galaxy was all there was, and that these other things that we recognize today as other galaxies were simply agglomerations of gas that were called nebulae, a Latin term for cloud. So when Einstein developed his theory, his bias was that he was describing the effects of matter on an unchanging universe, an unchanging space-time construct. And so, um, of course, he recognized when he developed this model that because matter distorts space, and that's the essence of general relativity, um, that the agglomeration of matter in the cosmos would by itself cause everything to collapse in. All of space would collapse in on itself, and we shouldn't be here. And so to fix that, he introduced into um, his theory a fudge factor uh, called the cosmological constant, which was essentially a repulsive term that would counteract gravity. And um, he published that and regarded that later on as a great mistake. And the reason he regarded it as a great mistake was that he hadn't accounted for the possibility that the universe, space, and the matter within it could all be in motion in some way. And in fact, only five years after 1917, after the publication of, of the model by Einstein, a Russian mathematician by the name of Alexander Friedman explored a range of possible universe models in the context of the theory of general relativity, one of which <clears throat> was an expanding universe model with matter in it. <clears throat> and in that model, he showed that the um, equations, uh, that the, the theory of general relativity um, could uh, be applied to a universe that was expanding and would do so, therefore, without effectively the aid of a cosmological constant. Now, he didn't identify the source of the expansion. Um, he didn't have any data to apply to this. He was in the Russia of 1922. Uh, in fact, Lemaitre didn't know of his work. Very few people did, except for Einstein. And Friedman died very young. He died a few years later and was never part of the conversation about the cosmology of the cosmos, of the universe, after that. Now, around the same time, another cosmologist, uh, de Sitter, published a solution to the equations of general relativity, which was very different. Space was static, but it was also empty. There was no matter in it. 
And by doing that, he showed that without a cosmological constant, the universe wouldn't collapse on itself. Now, that would seem a little bit artificial not to have any matter in the universe, um, but it was a useful model because in fact, the way the geometry of that model worked is if you put two test particles in this empty universe, they would actually begin to move away from each other. And so it was a model which suggested that you might actually see galaxies moving away from each other, although it was not a realistic depiction of our cosmos as we know it today. It might well be in the very far, far future uh, when the universe becomes very dilute. So that was the environment within which uh, Lemaitre began to work. And he, in his uh, PhD thesis and the work immediately after, what he did was to take the de Sitter model, which actually had a number of advantages. Um, these models involve describing a metric, which is kind of a matrix of uh, the way mass interacts with space-time. Um, he used the de Sitter metric but he modified it so that you could have matter in that cosmos. And furthermore, <clears throat> he did what Friedman had done, but without knowing it, he allowed space-time itself to expand. And um, that was a solution that worked. But what Lemaitre did that uh, neither de Sitter, nor Friedman, nor in fact Einstein did, was that Lemaitre, having worked on his PhD thesis on astronomical data, actually compared that model to the data that were available in that time period, which is now the mid-1920s, so 10 years after Einstein. By that point in time, observational astronomers had done two things. They had determined once and for all that these nebulae were actually other galaxies that were beyond our galaxy, and the universe was far larger than had been previously imagined. And in fact, that was something that Edwin Hubble contributed to very much. I'll get to that in a few minutes. The other thing that astronomers had discovered was that the galaxies did indeed seem to be moving away from each other on average. Some of the closer ones, not so much, but the more distant ones were. And that was work by an American astronomer, uh, among others, but I want to call him out because he is one of the best names that I can imagine an astronomer could have, Vesto Slipher, who worked in Arizona. And um, so he did a lot of that work. Now, um, as I'll describe, Lemaitre's uh, solution to uh, general relativity uh, in, specifically uh, implied that there was a proportionality between the distance to the galaxies and the speed at which they were moving away from each other. And I'll get back to that in a minute. But first I want to talk about, uh, very briefly, how distance and speed are actually found in astronomy. And if I were to do this properly, uh, we would be here for a few classes. So I'm not going to do this in any but a very cursory way. Distances in the cosmos are determined by bootstrapping one technique after another, starting with techniques that give you the distances to the nearest stars. This is in particular parallax, or the apparent shift of nearby stars against the background. And then um, using that uh, distance information to, with a different technique, extend the distance scale further. So you basically link different techniques to eventually get what's called the cosmic distance ladder. Now, what Hubble contributed, among other things, was a study of what were called Cepheid variable stars that have this peculiar property that their absolute brightness is related very simply to the period with which they pulsate. And so what that means is that no matter how far a Cepheid variable is away from you, so you don't really know its intrinsic brightness, you can find that brightness by measuring the period of the pulsation. And once you have the absolute brightness, you compare that to the relative brightness, you now have the distance. That technique um, was what Hubble used to determine distances to galaxies with a colleague, Milton Humason. It's also the technique used with the Hubble Space Telescope that helped to refine distances and determine that our universe is not only expanding, but is actually accelerating. 
Cepheid variables and supernovas. Of course, that's many decades later. Now, the distances to galaxies is one thing. The recession speed is another. And this is determined by measuring the colors of galaxies or their spectra, as you see on the right-hand side of this slide. And as very much as the case with um, a train whistle, for example, um, if a galaxy is approaching you, um, the light of that galaxy is shifted to the blue, just as the pitch of a train whistle or a car horn is shifted toward higher pitch. If it's moving away from you, then the pitch gets lower, if we're talking about a train whistle, or the wavelength of light gets longer, the frequency gets lower, and so the galaxy appears redder. This is sometimes called a Doppler shift, and it's easy to use with galaxies because galaxies have very recognizable uh, signatures in their spectra. And it was from that that it was determined uh, by um, Slipher and other astronomers that on average galaxies are moving away from each other. Now there's a, an ambiguity in this, which is are the galaxies moving away from each other in a fixed universe or is something else happening? Um, what Lemaitre realized, as well as a few others, but many other astronomers did not, was that in fact this red shift that was seen was the result of the expansion of space itself. So to illustrate that, because uh, this is a big lecture hall, I didn't bring my balloon, I photographed the balloon, I can draw a squiggle, as you see on the left-hand side, of light coming from um, a galaxy close to my thumb and traveling to the observer, which is the dot in the middle. And what I'm imagining here is to take the three dimensions of space that we exist in and collapse them to the two dimensions on the surface of the balloon. So the balloon surface is the cosmos, okay? Now space is curved, but the curvature of space is very, very small in the real world. It's like having a balloon so large that you can't notice that it's curved but we're not gonna worry about that for the moment. So this light takes a finite amount of time to travel to the observer, and during that time, um, the balloon is inflated. So I've put air into the balloon, and now it's bigger, and so by the time the light reaches the observer, um, the wavelength of light, which is the blue bar on the left, uh, has become the red bar on the right, and if I compare the sizes of those two, you see that the red bar is longer. The wavelength has become larger, the, the light from that galaxy appears redder because space itself is expanding. And in that situation, with the metric that Lemaitre had applied to the equations of, uh, of general relativity, um, the distance to that galaxy is just proportional to the recessional velocity. The larger the distance, the higher the recession velocity. Now the canonical story in astronomy is that this was discovered by Edwin Hubble. And indeed he discovered it through the observations. By the time he published his paper, which um, first uh, explained Hubble's law in 1929 in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, there were enough data on galaxy distances and velocities that he could actually show from the data this linear relationship with which I've written here, the recession speed of the galaxy is equal to the galaxy distance times a simple constant of proportionality, which eventually came to be known as Hubble's constant, and that equation became known as Hubble's law. And the Hubble constant is uh, a uh, velocity per distance. It's usually given in kilometers per second per megaparsec. Now, a parsec is a unit of distance in astronomy. Let's just take that as a unit of distance without having to worry about how it's derived. A megaparsec is a million parsecs. And in those numbers, the value that he derived in that day was something like 540 kilometers per second per megaparsec. And so this is what Hubble is credited with. And he deserves to be credited with it. But Lemaitre published the same relationship two years before Hubble did. He published it not in English, in the Proceedings of the U.S. National Academy of Sciences, where Hubble published. He published, Lemaitre published this in French 
in the Annals of the Scientific Society of Brussels, a journal that probably no American or British astronomers ever read. And by that point, astronomy was dominated by the Germans and the Americans and the British. And so in this paper in 1977, Lemaitre presents his solution, which is a modified de Sitter universe expanding with matter in it, and he shows that that implies a linear relationship, and he then actually goes on to derive what we call the Hubble constant. But no one paid attention to this, nobody knew about it. And uh, so as the astrophysicist Robert Kirshner pointed out, Lemaitre was just underrated. He wrote in French, whereas English was really the lingua franca of astronomy by that point, and he published in an obscure journal. But then the story takes an unexpected turn. Lemaitre had worked with um, the famous cosmologist Arthur Eddington when he, uh, just after he uh, became ordained, before he went to the US. And um, they had continued a correspondence. In 1930, three years after Lemaitre published his article, uh, which he had sent to Eddington, but it was in French, Eddington presented a paper at a conference with his own solution to the equations of general relativity, which looked remarkably like Lemaitre's, and which he said he had thought up. Uh, a colleague of Lemaitre pointed out to Lemaitre, who was not at the meeting, that this had happened. Lemaitre wrote to his former advisor politely. Um, it was actually, in fact, published uh, in uh, this um, uh, magazine, The Observatory. And Lemaitre pointed out that he had actually come up with this solution several years before. Now, those of us who are astronomers know that we sometimes have colleagues who, if we were to do that to them, they would write back uh, in a rude way saying, well, yeah, but you know, you didn't do this and that, I thought it up first. Eddington did not do that. Eddington, who by the way was a devout Quaker, was mortified, realized that in fact Lemaitre had talked to him about the solution. He had forgotten this, as we often do, and had rethought it up himself. So he responded to Lemaitre and said, we need to get that paper published in an English journal. And so uh, Eddington contacted the editor of the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society, a prominent journal, and had the English language translation of Lemaitre's 1927 paper published in 1931. So then Lemaitre would get credit. However, the key portion of the 1927 paper in French that described what we call the Hubble's Law was missing from the 1931 English version in the monthly notices. And that key phrase is here, and nowadays it takes 30 seconds to get this paper off the internet, okay? Back in those days, a little different. So anyway, what it says in French, this is Lemaitre's work, using the 42 galaxies taken from Hubble's list and from Stromberg, who's another observer, and taking account of the proper motion of the sun, which biases everything, uh, which was 300 kilometers per second in a given direction, one finds a mean distance of 0.95 million parsecs and a radial velocity of 600 kilometers per second, that's the recession velocity, and therefore 625 kilometers per second per million parsecs. And Lemaitre had derived the Hubble constant and the Hubble law before Hubble did. Now, there's a caveat to this. Lemaitre had plotted the data that he was using and realized that it didn't actually fit a straight line very well, but he knew it had to be a straight line from his model. And so he realized he couldn't show that, and so what he actually did was knowing that this must be a linear relationship, he just took the mean value, and he took the mean value of the, the uh, velocity and divided it by the distance. So he didn't demonstrate from the data that this linear relationship existed. He knew it had to exist from his model, and he derived the proportionality constant. Hubble, on the other hand, two years later with better data, was able to show that it was actually a linear relationship between the recession speed of the galaxies and their distance. So both contributed in different ways. Now the omission of this part of the French paper up until 2011 was unexplained except by conspiracy theorists 
um, not UFO conspiracy theorists, but this was some anti-religious thing. But it wasn't. Uh, Mario Livio, a scientist at Space Telescope, uh, actually unearthed in the files of the Royal Astronomical Society uh, material that showed that the omission was actually made by Lemaitre himself. And in a letter that Lemaitre wrote, a cover letter, uh, along with the English translation of his paper to the editor of Minras, Lemaitre says that um, he sends the translation of the paper, which he did himself. He said, I didn't find it advisable to reprint the provisional discussion of radial velocity, that's the recession velocity, which is clearly of no current interest. He actually, he used um, a, a different word, which is sort of a false friend between French and English. His English wasn't perfect, but it's clear that he meant of no interest in that year, on that day. And then he said, I made the translation as exact as I can. So it's clear that Lemaitre, having seen Hubble's paper, realizing that what he had in 1927 in terms of data was much sparser, didn't see any point in including the part of the paper that he regarded now as out of date. But by doing that, he lost the priority on that law. So um, the irony in all of this in the end is that as great a scientist as Edwin Hubble was, and I recognize he was a graduate of this institution, he never really understood general relativity and he never accepted the idea that the universe was expanding. In fact, his explanation for the redshift, what we call the cosmological redshift, was something called light fatigue, where as light traveled farther and farther, it just lost energy and got redder. In 1941, in an interview in the Los Angeles Times, which is shown here on the lower left, he says straight out that the data don't support an expanding universe. Um, Einstein came and visited him at the uh, Mount Wilson Observatory. Uh, and he was a guest of Hubble. Uh, and you know he looked through the telescope, but he was also there to try to convince Hubble that, yeah, the universe was really expanding. Hubble didn't accept that. Now, that doesn't take credit away from Hubble for the Hubble law. But it does mean that anyone who argues that Hubble essentially discovered the expansion of the universe is not quite right, because that's not the interpretation that Hubble gave to these data. Now, the American Institute of Physics, or American Physical Society, excuse me, in its biography um, of Hubble, tries to uh, sort of make a little euphemism about this by saying, well, Hubble preferred to leave the interpretation to the theorists. But it was actually more than that. So, um, Good, it was blank on my screen. That was not the end of Lemaitre's contributions. Lemaitre, having published this metric, this solution to general relativity, thought about the implications of this model. And he knew that what this meant was that if you ran the tape backwards on his cosmos, space and time, space would get smaller and smaller, matter density would go up, eventually you'd get to something extremely small, extremely compact, and in his view, um, this was the equivalent of a kind of a single atom, and from that point, you could go no further, and so the universe had to have a beginning. And so in 1931, Lemaitre published, this time in an English language journal, Nature, a letter uh, entitled, The Beginning of the World from the Point of View of Quantum Theory. And he lays out an idea for the starting conditions, the idea that this primeval atom, as he called it, would fragment and space would begin to expand and time would begin. And this was effectively what we call today the Big Bang Theory, which was not a name that he put to it. I'll tell you in a few minutes who put the, big, the name Big Bang to this primeval atom model. You know who it was. Um, Stephen Hawking, uh, who was somewhat skeptical of some of Lemaitre's contributions, straight out gives credit to Lemaitre for the Big Bang model. Now, you know, all of this would be fine, and, and Lemaitre continued to tour and, and give talks, um, but there was always the issue with respect to some uh, other astronomers that somehow this primeval atom model had a religious origin to it. 
a lot of astronomers just didn't like the idea that the universe had a beginning. Because if it had a beginning, what was there before that beginning? It just smacked of some kind of religious um, uh, philosophy or undertone to it. Uh, and Lemaitre always denied that. Uh, and I'm now going to talk about an episode uh, in Lemaitre's life which made him harder, made it harder for him to deny that. And of course, Fiat Lux, let there be light. Um, the astronomers uh, who in particular didn't like this model so much that they invented an interesting alternative model were uh, Sir Fred Hoyle, very famous British astronomer uh, and a great popularizer of science. Uh, he had his own BBC radio show. Uh, you see him over on the right side rolling up his sleeves. Herman Bondy in the middle and Thomas Gold uh, often goes by Tommy Gold, uh, from Austria. And they developed a model in which the universe was eternal and unchanging, but it was expanding. Now, how could it do that? If it's expanding, it becomes more dilute. Well, what they postulated was that matter was continuously being created. It didn't have to be very much. It's something like a hydrogen atom per cubic centimeter every few billion years or so, okay, you never notice it. Um, it's like I never notice my hair disappearing back here or reappearing. Um, and it worked, I mean, it was fine. You know, everything that was known in the 1940s, um, that model worked just as well. And the delay between the 30s and the 40s was really uh, the effects of World War II in Europe that really put a damper on science from the late 30s to the mid 40s. Now, there is a Cornell connection with Tommy Gold, the man on the left side. He went on to found the Center for Radio Physics and Space Research at Cornell, which I direct today. Um, he was a brilliant scientist, uh, often wrong and often right. In this case, the three of them were wrong. But Hoyle was a, a great promoter. And in fact, uh, on his BBC radio show, he asserted that the genesis, no pun intended, of the Big Bang model was religiously motivated. He didn't directly refer to Lemaitre, but he was referring to Lemaitre. And in fact, Hoyle would sort of sarcastically refer to this exploding universe model as the Big Bang. He was the one who put that term to the model. And he didn't do it from a complementary point of view. So Lemaitre insisted, on the other hand, that his model had no religious implication. You could be an atheist, you could be a believer. Either way, it had no implication for the model or accepting the model whatsoever. So, of course, who's the guy to ruin this all but the Pope, right? Um, so, Pope Pius XII was um, a very intelligent man. He was a, a bright scholar who really enjoyed digging into the science and technology of the day. And he would read voraciously, and he would learn the language of that science. And in this case, uh, again, after World War II, he was invited, uh, or he wasn't invited, he gave a talk to the Pontifical Academy of Sciences, um, which was his academy. And this talk is referred to as the Fiat Lux talk because in it he basically said that astronomers, he didn't call out Lemaitre specifically, that astronomers had discovered that the universe had a definite beginning. He describes with this brilliant prose uh, the formation and expansion of galaxies, and he says this proves that there was a creator. Well, Lemaitre was horrified at this for two reasons. One is uh, the Holy Father didn't mention his name. He pointed out to a student that that was irritating, but the other was he, his, his model, which he asserted was not connected with any sort of theology, was now directly connected with the book of Genesis by the Pope. And furthermore, he learned that the Pope was invited to give the opening address to the International Astronomical Union the next year in Rome, which was a much, much larger group of astronomers. So uh, Lemaitre actually visited um, uh, Rome on his way to South Africa and intervened uh, and was able to talk down the Pope. It's not clear whether it was directly or through um, uh, the uh, director of the Vatican Observatory was there as well, convinced the Pope to not give that speech, which the Pope, to his credit, never did. He never mentioned this anymore. 
But the damage was done, and so there was always this suspicion about that model. Now, Lemaitre was not active in this field in the 40s and 50s, and I'll get to why that, or the 60s. He did other things in science, had others as students doing other uh, sorts of problems. Uh, and I'll talk about why that is at the end of the lecture. But at the time of his death, the first direct evidence that the Big Bang model was correct and the steady state model was wrong uh, came through observations with a radio telescope by two uh, Bell Labs engineers, Penzias and Wilson. Now, in Lemaitre's model, he envisioned this primordial atom at the beginning as breaking apart, and the signature of that, he thought, were cosmic rays, which he learned about from Millikan at Caltech. That was wrong. That was a cold start to the universe. A hot start to the universe involved temperatures so high that the matter in the universe in the early period for about 400,000 years would absorb all the light immediately around it. So the universe would be opaque. As the universe expanded and became more dilute and cooler, there would come a point when the universe was no longer opaque, it was transparent, light could move freely, that surface in time when it's redshifted out by the expansion of the cosmos looks like a un almost uniform microwave signal. And that's what the Bell Lab engineers detected. And at that point, it was clear the steady state model, which had no provision for this, was wrong. Very close to his death, Lemaitre was following these, these results. And he was talking with some colleagues at least a few days before his death, maybe a bit before. But I think it's a wonderful thing that he was able at the end of his life to actually find out that his model was right. Now I want to shift gears, and um, I guess I have to end at 8 o'clock, so I'm going to try to end as close to that as possible so we can have questions. Um, I want to shift gears to the issue of conflating science with philosophy and theology. And this is something that I think contributes to uh, the issue of um, uh, difficulty of students who are pursuing science who want to maintain their beliefs. Uh, there's this interesting uh, uh, quote from a book, The Grand Design, by Stephen Hawking and uh, another physicist called Mladenov, uh, uh, in which, and I'll just read it straight out, they say, what is the nature of reality? Where did all this come from? Did the universe need a creator? Traditionally, these are questions for philosophy, but philosophy is dead. It's dead, say the astrophysicists. Scientists have become the bearers of the torch of discovery in our quest for knowledge. That's a very bold statement to make, but it's a statement I would venture to say most people believe today, including most science journalists. And if you ever take the unpleasant task of reading what you see on the web, you find out that that's really the case. And furthermore, scientists are believed far more often, if you read in polls, than people in most other fields, of course, more than politicians. So what a scientist says really matters, and scientists have to be careful about what they say. And for example, we know that Stephen Hawking has said that we know how the universe began, began from nothing, and that proves that there isn't a God. And I want to go through that argument with you to show that in fact those two statements that the universe had a beginning and there is no God are completely separate from each other, despite what Hawking says. So let's begin with the paper from 1931, uh, which is the primeval atom model, in which Lemaitre, who wrote this paper, says if the world began with a single quantum, a single atom, the notions of space and time would altogether fail to have any meaning they would only begin to have a sensible meaning when the original quantum or atom had been divided into a sufficient number of quanta. So if there's only one thing that is reality and that thing doesn't have anything to interact with, then there is no time effectively. Nothing has happened. And then he goes on to say, therefore, the beginning of the world happened a little before the beginning of space and time. These are really interesting statements because if you go back to St. Augustine in the City of God, uh, from 1,500 years before, he says exactly the same thing. He says, if eternity and time are rightly distinguished by the fact that time doesn't exist without some movement and transition, while in eternity there is no change, who does not see that there could have been no time had not some creature, read primeval atom, 
been made by which some motion could give birth to change. Read it splitting up. And then he goes on to write, then assuredly the world was made not in time, but simultaneously with time. This must have been in Lemaitre's mind when he wrote this, because the statements are so identical. But what's more interesting is that Hawking says exactly the same thing. Um, in writings that were collected posthumously in a book, Brief Answers to Big Questions, um, Hawking says, and here he's paraphrased in another article, because the universe also began as a singularity, this primeval atom, but updated now, time itself could not have existed before the Big Bang. There was no time before the Big Bang. But then Hawking goes on to draw a conclusion from this, which is we have finally found something that doesn't have a cause because there is no time for a cause to exist in. For me, this means there's no possibility of a creator because there's no time for a creator to have existed in. So evidently, philosophy is not dead because Stephen Hawking is doing philosophy. And he's doing it on exactly the same statement that St. Augustine and Lemaitre did 1,500 years apart and they surely were not arguing for the lack of a creator. In fact, the mistake that Hawking is making is he's conflating a creator of all reality with some kind of demiurge that exists in the universe and is just more powerful than we are, and he can't do anything because time hasn't started yet. Well, that's, you know, Lemaitre was, was confronted with that uh, in various conferences, and he would often say, well, you know, that's not the God that I believe in. And of course, many of us say that uh, as well. And it's clear that Lemaitre not only believed in God, but he believed, and he was a priest, um, he believed that God was, was manifest through the physics, that God was hidden in the physics, but that his actions were in fact made through physics. And he went so far as to write that in his manuscript to nature. Uh, so in the archives at Louvain, you can find this version of that article with the last paragraph that says that I think everyone who believes in a supreme being supporting every being and every action, that was a mistake on his part acting, believes also that God is essentially hidden and may be seen to see how present physics provides a veil hiding the creation. So the creator in a Thomistic way has brought everything into reality, and I'll give you a quote in a minute, not at the beginning, but is hidden in the physics that keeps everything going all the time. And so here is that quote. Lemaitre distinguishes a beginning of the universe from the creation of reality. He says, we may speak of this event as a beginning. I don't say a creation. Physically, it's a beginning in the sense that if something happened before, it has no observable influence on the behavior of the universe. Now, he did explore Phoenix universes where there were cycles in these big bangs. But the simple model is that all the information prior, if there was a prior, is simply lost. Um, any pre-existence of the universe has a metaphysical character. Physically, everything happens as if the theoretical zero were really a beginning. The question if it was really a beginning or rather a creation of something from absolutely nothing, something starting from nothing is a philosophical question which cannot be settled by physical or astronomical considerations. And that I think is absolutely correct uh, because the issue of existence of being is separate from the question of how the expansion of the universe began. Now, what's interesting as well is this idea of something coming from nothing as being an example of, or a proof of the non-existence of God, which also comes from another astrophysicist, Larry Krauss, can be turned two ways. On the one hand, Hawking says, the universe itself and all its mind-boggling vastness and complexity could simply have popped into existence without violating the known laws of nature. But on the other hand, if you're a, a member of the Soviet Politburo and also an atheist, admittedly from decades before, you don't like something from nothing. Um, Zdanov, who's an interesting case of Soviet ideology, says the reactionary scientists, Lemaitre, Milne, and others, made use of the redshift in order to strengthen religious views on the structure of the universe. Falsifiers of science want to revive the fairy tale of the origin of the world from nothing. So it's very clear that how you regard the question of something coming from nothing is a philosophical issue. You can be a Soviet ideologue and believe that uh, it is a false ideology. 
You can be an astrophysicist who doesn't believe in God and believe that something from nothing demonstrates that God doesn't exist. You can be a believing scientist and argue that the beginning of the universe doesn't tell you anything about the existence of God or not because that's not the creation of being and beingness from a state of non-beingness. And that was Lemaitre's point of view and I think it's the more sophisticated of any of these points of view. I'm gonna skip Lemaitre's contributions to the vacuum energy because it's interesting but somewhat peripheral to what we're talking about here. I can talk about it in the question period. But I do wanna point out that Lemaitre's contributions to cosmology go beyond his um, solution to the equations of general relativity, uh, the first exposition of what came known as Hubble's Law and the Big Bang. There's a laundry list of things he looked at uh, during this period, uh, actually out beyond 1934 uh, to World War II. Um, he talked, for example, about Phoenix universes, which we would call now cyclic cosmology, Big Bang collapse, Big Bang collapse. Um, he did, in fact, identify the cosmological constant with what he called a vacuum energy, which today we would call dark energy. And in fact, um, a, a number of, of physicists, Alan Guth and Kirshner, have remarked on how modern that view is from the 1930s. But Lemaitre was largely forgotten uh, after the uh, period in the 1930s that he played a key role. And if you read astronomy textbooks from the 70s, you hardly see his name. In fact, even this metric that he's recognized for with several other people, he's sometimes omitted from that. Kirshner's explanation for that, uh, as, uh, in an article in Physics Today, is that Lemaitre, uh, his contributions were undervalued and he was a significant player in the formative years of relativistic cosmology. But he was undervalued not out of ignorance or linguistic bias, but because by the mid-1930s he stopped doing original research in cosmology and devoted himself to other aspects of academic life and to matters of faith. That actually is not true. Um, for all the good that Bob Kirshner has done with this, if you look in the literature, Lemaitre still was publishing papers and going to conferences. But what really stopped his work in this field was that he could not escape Belgium before the Nazis invaded. In fact, if he had left with his family about three days before, he would have escaped. And so he was forced to stay in Louvain. He was out of contact with the rest of the community. His university was actually bombed by the Allies by mistake, and several of the buildings that he worked in were destroyed, and he was nearly killed because his apartment was nearby. Um, and so by the time World War II was over, uh, he was really out of touch with the community. He had not been able to interact. And what had happened to the cosmology community was that they had moved from general relativity, which really kind of became a, a sort of an uninteresting field until the 1960s and 70s when black holes, thanks to um, Hawking and uh, Penrose, became in vogue, that community switched to nuclear physics. They wanted to understand the implications of the Big Bang model for the formation of elements and stellar evolution. And so it was nuclear physicists who took over. And Lemaitre was not interested in that. It was not his field. And by the time he came back into the scientific community when Belgium opened again, um, this was already past him. And so he worked on many other interesting problems, but not these problems. And it was not because of his religious life. It was because of the situation in Europe. Remember that Einstein escaped from Europe before uh, the Nazis um, essentially closed it down. So it's, you know, that's one reason why he's forgotten. I'm not going to talk about Stigler's Law of Eponymy, but you can ask me about it. It's very interesting. It's that the law that no, um, no, no law is named after its, its originator. Um, it doesn't actually work all the time, but it's an interesting one. Uh, Lemaitre clearly um, was prime, of prime importance in demonstrating that the physical universe expanded from a very different state. And Jim Peebles, the cosmologist, uh, in a preface to a biography of Lemaitre makes the extraordinary claim that 
Um, that demonstration grew out of advances in the 1920s and 30s that to a striking degree were the work of a single person, Georges Lemaitre. And uh, Luminette points out when um, he was uh, discussing uh, Lemaitre's contributions actually to, to dark energy, he says it was not that simple in front of an audience that was three quarters Anglo-American for whom the history of modern cosmology reduces to the single name of Hubble to explain that Lemaitre in French and 40 years ahead of time had already given all the ins and outs of the cosmological constant. And so <clears throat> bottom line is that this resolution that was introduced before the International Astronomical Union to recommend, because none of these are binding, that Hubble's law be referred to as the Hubble-Lemaitre law, actually passed by electronic vote, uh, which was announced on Monday, 78% in favor, 20% uh, against. Uh, there are a few astronomers here who have objected to it, but you know, it was very much uh, in favor. And uh, so I would encourage those of you who do astronomy or talk about it to refer to uh, the Hubble-Lemaitre law. The constant has not been renamed. That's Hubble's constant. It's just the Hubble-Lemaitre law. And I want to close by pointing out then that Lemaitre led a harmonious, largely hum harmonious life, except for uh, that time in World War II. And the harmony was not only um, in his uh, science, but also in his religious life. And he could bring the two together in many ways, not only in the example I gave from the Nature paper, but in 1934, accepting the Franck Prize, he said, science is beautiful, it deserves to be loved for itself, as it is a reflection of God's creative thought. And I don't know many people who can express that kind of viewpoint in so beautiful and succinct a way. And so I'm very glad that uh, Georges-Henri uh, Lemaitre has now, uh, at least through the International Astronomical Union, been recognized through the Hubble-Lemaitre Law. Thank you very much.